God is at work through His local church and through the teaching of His Word. This morning on MyBridge Radio, we are pleased to share a favorite message from City Light Church in Omaha. Here's Pastor Gavin Johnson. This morning's passage brings us to the topic of the return of Jesus, to His second coming where He's going to bring His final judgment upon the earth and the restoration of all things, the renewal of all things for His people. Uh, throughout history, there have been many who have sought to predict when is this all going to go down. What is the timing of Christ's return? Some of the most famous examples include the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, they predicted in their, um, I think we got a slide, there we go, they predicted in their publication, The Watchtower, uh, that the Armageddon would happen in 1975. After that year came and went, the group leaders denied their prediction and sought to scrub all records of their failed prophecy. Uh, later on, a Christian radio broadcaster named Harold Camping became famous for using numerology to predict the end of the world. His uh, weekly radio program on the family radio network was consumed by millions of listeners from around the world that listened to this guy. Uh, his first prediction uh, for doomsday was back on May 21 of 1988. Of course, that day came and went. Uh, he then predicted that the end of all things would be September of 1994. And uh, he wrote a book by the title of 1994, question mark, question mark. Made a lot of money off that prediction and that book. But when that date came and went, he said he had to modify his complex mathematical calculation. And uh, in his modification, he arrived at the new certain date for the end of the world that it would be May 21 of 2011. When that date came and went, uh, he said he needed to amend the date one more time. His calculation was a little off, and he moved the date to October 21 of 2011. His ministry uh, spent millions of dollars putting up billboards such as this and radio ads all across uh, the country. It created quite the frenzy. There were a lot of rushed marriages, people quitting their jobs. Uh, a lot of people really bought into what this guy had to say, but of course that date came and went 12 years ago, and here we are. Well, for obvious reasons, Jesus said, no one knows when he is coming back. We don't know when that last day will be. But while Jesus said, we don't know when he's going to return, he did say we should be prepared for his return at all times, that it could come at any time. And so as we think about end times and Christ's second uh, coming this morning, I would propose there's sort of two ways that we can miss the point, okay? The first way that we can miss it is we can become so fixated with the return of Christ that it becomes the only lens through which we think about our faith. And we can draw out potential timelines and put together who do we think the, the Antichrist will be, and we can watch the daily headlines and try to predict, is crypto the one world currency of Revelation, and how close are we to that last day? And when end times becomes our obsession, I would say we, we can fail to live faithfully and fruitfully in this life that God has placed us in here and now, we can be so heavenly oriented uh, that as one uh, famous uh, quote says, we can be of no use on this earth because we are so heavenly minded. And so you'll find people that are, uh, spend hours and hours on really awkward websites with bad graphic design and they're stockpiling food in their basement for the certain coming of the tribulation. This is not the point of the kingdom. This is not the point of this scripture. In fact, something similar happened in the New Testament. There was a church in Thessalonica, and uh, the believers there were, were convinced that Jesus' return was going to be imminent, and so they quit working. And it's in the Bible. Paul actually writes to this church and tells them, guys, you need to go back to work. 
You need to go to work. If you don't work, you don't eat, okay? So that's one way we can miss it. But I think the other way we can miss the point is we can disregard the return of Jesus altogether. And in so doing, we can sort of make this earth our home. We can seek to create a a bit of heaven on earth with our own security and our own safety and our own comfort. And when we do that, we we often quit living like sojourners here, like people that uh, are preparing for the life to come. But Titus chapter 2 and 13 says that the coming of Jesus is our glorious hope. For the believer, this is the date on the calendar that we are looking forward to more than anything. When Jesus comes on that final day, he will establish his final physical kingdom, and we will live with the king apart from sin and death and pain and all the effects and consequences of the fall. And for the believer in Christ, that will be the best day. And yet for those who have rejected Christ, it will be the worst day. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to talk about these things in part, but he's going to speak to them in terms of the kingdom of God. So at the beginning of our passage, the Pharisees asked Jesus, when is the kingdom of God coming? And Jesus answers really with a two-part answers, uh, answer. He says at the beginning, the kingdom is in your midst. In other words, you don't need to wait for a future day. The kingdom is already here. Look around you. Here is the kingdom. But then on the second half of the passage, he does turn his attention to a future day when the kingdom will come in its fullest sense. And so this is what theologians call the already and not yet of the kingdom of God, this tension of the king coming, being here now and yet looking forward to that final day. And so that's where we're headed this morning. We're going to divide the text by looking at those two answers. First, we're going to look at verses 20 and 21, the truth that the kingdom is here now. And what are the implications of that? And then we're going to look at verses 22 to the end of the chapter, this idea of a future coming kingdom uh, that is still on the timeline of history or the front horizon of history. And so that's uh, that's where we're headed. We're going to hop into our text. The first truth, as I said, uh, is uh, this truth, that the kingdom of God is here in part. Okay, we're going to pick it up, chapter 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Now, let me pause really quick because I haven't given a definition to the kingdom of God. First, we need to answer, what are they asking about? What are they inquiring? What is the kingdom of God that they're curious uh, about the timing of? Well, the kingdom of God, very simply, is a theme that actually is all over Scripture. It starts in Genesis. It's all throughout Revelation. And if I had to summarize the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is where God's people live under the reign and rule of God as their king. And so the most obvious early expression is the garden. God creates our first parents, Adam and Eve, and he places them in a wonderful place. And he lives as their king. And we see that, uh, that, uh, that, that, that they willingly submit to his reign. And so they live in obedience, and they live in bliss, and they live in the garden. But then a day comes when they decide they want to be a king unto themselves. Uh, They live under the reign of the enemy, and they choose to disobey the king. And what happens? The kingdom of this world is inaugurated. When sin and disobedience enters the world, and everything has been different uh, since that moment. Uh, If you need evidence, just look at the news headlines. Humanity does not do well when we live as our own kings. We thrive when God is our king. And so since that time, all of us at all times are living in every moment either in the dominion of the kingdom of God, with him as our king, or in the kingdom of this world, where ourselves or anything else serves as Lord and sovereign over our lives. could be our own will, our own decision-making, our own desires. It's a case study that we're not all born into the kingdom of God, that we live in the kingdom of this world. Uh, Let me ask this question, and I want you to answer. It's not uh, hypothetical uh, or uh, rhetorical. 
what are some of the most common words uttered by a two-year-old? Mine. Any others? No. No and mine. No and mine. Do you know what those words are? That's the language of kingship. Literally, what's it established? It's, it's establishing borders. Mine. This is my kingdom. And it's establishing sovereignty. No. This is my dominion. I control the shots of my kingdom. No and mine. That is the language of a king. And what happens is no one has to teach us that. We're born into the kingdom of this world. But here's the kingdom of God. When God intersects our lives and when no and mine is replaced with yes, Jesus. Everything belongs to you. You are my king. Okay? That's the kingdom of God. And in our passage, it's interesting, the Pharisees ask when this kingdom is coming. And their assumption is it's a future day and that the kingdom of God would come with geographical boundaries. Right? They thought that the kingdom of God would, would be restored when Rome was taken out of power, when the nation of Israel would exist as a sovereign, self-governed, geopolitical state again. That's the That's the conversation here. Now, look at our verse again with that as the background. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So Jesus doesn't answer the timeline question. Instead, he corrects their view of the kingdom of God altogether. He says it's not coming in physical ways as though someone could say, look, there it is, or here it is now. It's not a kingdom that can be marked with borders or fly a flag or be established with war. It's a spiritual kingdom that was already in their midst. The kingdom was in their midst because the king of the kingdom had come and was in their midst. In fact, the king of the kingdom was right in front of them. Jesus is God himself. He is the king of the kingdom. And the kingdom of God had come because people were turning to Jesus as their king and their Lord. They were being saved by Jesus. They're following Jesus as king and Lord of their lives. And the kingdom was made visible then where the sick were being healed, where dead were being raised, where the guilty were being pardon, where the vulnerable were being cared for and protected. It was a spiritual kingdom that was already in their midst. And City Light, the kingdom of God is here too. It's in our midst and it's growing and it's increasing every day. That's why we pray when we pray the Lord's prayer, would we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are we praying when we're praying that? We're praying for the kingdom, for the reigning and ruling of God and Jesus to come on this earth for human flourishing, that more people would meet Jesus, have their sins forgiven, and come into the kingdom. So too, we're praying that his kingship would reign and rule in our own hearts and lives more and more, that we would live out the kingdom in the way that we treat other people, that we would live out the kingdom in the way we express humility and selflessness, the way that we make much of Jesus rather than ourselves. So the kingdom of God is here, friends, because the king has come. We're not waiting for some future day. But it's not a a kingdom that's limited by borders. It transcends all human borders and cultures and even human languages. In fact, one of my favorite experiences, uh, my greatest joys as a believer, has been to experience the Big C Church in different parts of the world. 
So I got to worship Jesus in an underground church in China. I worship Jesus in a big urban city in Cambodia. I've worshiped Jesus in the Middle East, where King Jesus is praised in the Arabic tongue. I've worshiped Jesus in German cathedrals and in a small town Baptist church in Poland. I've worshiped Jesus in an African village on dirt floor with the blazing heat overhead. And in each context, there's so many differences. We are so different. I felt very tall and tan in China. I felt very short and pasty in Africa. We speak different languages. We dress different. We express ourselves different. We eat different. We look different. But in each context, there has been such a kinship that I have felt uh, with Christians from around the world because we have the same king. When you encounter these people and you walk into their context, you see they're studying the same scripture. They're singing songs. I don't understand a single word, but I know that they are singing Jesus. I realize these are my people. We have the same king. We are a part of the same citizenship. We belong together. Because before we're American or Ivorian or Chinese or Cambodian or Syrian or Polish, we are Christians and we worship the king. We are the same uh, members of the same kingdom. And I remember in China hugging a Chinese brother, an older gentleman, a brother in Christ. He initiated the hug, and uh, we're hugging in this context. And I remember thinking, I cannot share one word with you. We don't know one word in common. And yet, I have more in common with you, brother, than much of my family back home that does not know the king. Even though we look the same, we wear similar clothes, we speak with the same Midwestern accent, this is my family. My citizenship united with this man transcends what I have back home. Why? Because the kingdom is here, and it transcends culture. It is wherever Jesus is the king. And so I want to ask you on this first point, are you in the kingdom? You don't need to wait for a future day. The king is in our midst, and he has come, and you can know the king and enter this kingdom. And the good news for sinners like me and like you is that the king of the kingdom is a servant king. He is a king who came to die for our sins, to bring us into his perfect kingdom for all of eternity. And he gives us our citizenship freely by grace. There is no tryout. There is no test. We receive it through faith, through receiving and trusting in the king for our salvation. And so would today be the day that you enter the kingdom, if you haven't already, and see Jesus as your savior, servant, king. Now, back to the text. After making this statement to the Pharisees, Jesus then turns to his disciples, who, have, who are presumably already in the kingdom. They know that the kingdom is here. And now his, his topic, his comment, seemed to shift about the future state of the kingdom. And he begins teaching his disciples that are in the kingdom here and now about how even though it's here, that there's going to be a day in the future that the kingdom is going to come in full, in a full and final sense, when he returns a second time to rule and reign as king with his people in the life to come for all of eternity. And so it's in this section that we learn that the kingdom of God is here in part, but it's coming in full. It's coming in full. And so as Jesus teaches us about what it's going to be like, he tells us what I would say are essentially three things. I would summarize his response about the future coming of the kingdom by telling us that it will be, one, unmistakable, number two, unexpected, and three, that it will divide humanity. Let's look at them in turn. First, we see that Jesus' return is going to be unmistakable. We're not going to miss it. Verse 22, it says, And he said to his disciples, again, audience has changed now, The days are coming, so future, when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. That was Jesus' favorite designation for himself that he pulled out of Daniel 9. And you will not see it. So what's he talking about? He's talking about a time when the disciples will long to be with Jesus physically, bodily, and yet they won't enjoy that experience. 
He's talking about the day between his death and resurrection and his final return. And he's painting a picture. There's going to be a day of longing where you experience the alreadiness of the kingdom and yet your heart will be looking forward with anticipation to be with the Son of Man. That's, in a sense, what Jesus is saying. There's going to be a day that comes. I'm going to be kind of with you, but kind of not. It's a spiritual kingdom and you'll long for it. Verse 23, it says, And they will say to you, so this is in this in-between, as we wait, They, we don't know who that is, they will say to you, look there or look here. He warns us, do not go out and follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to another, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus is saying he's going to go to the cross. He's going to suffer by this generation. That's the atonement for sins. That's what we celebrate in Passion Week. He had to go to the cross face the wrath of God, die, be buried, rise again. But after that moment, his return essentially could come at any time. No one can predict it. So he's warning us, don't get duped by someone who thinks that they have privileged information. Usually if someone says that or thinks that, they have an ulterior motive, and it's usually money, okay? Lots of books and websites have been monetized saying, I know the inside scoop, so come listen to me. Right? And curious and well-meaning Christians who are sincere go, really? I want to be ready. Here's your 1999 for your book. He's saying, listen, listen, listen. The herald campings of the world who claim that they know when Jesus is coming back, let me just help you out in the front set. They do not know. Okay? He says, don't listen to them. You're not going to miss it. Everybody's going to see when it happens. On that last day, every person on every continent and every hemisphere will know in a moment Jesus is back. So number one, it's going to be unmistakable. Number two, Jesus says it will be unexpected. Unexpected. Verse 26, Jesus goes on to say, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. He says, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So Jesus illustratively is pulling from two Old Testament stories. And both stories, the story of Noah and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, were Old Testament stories of God's judgment coming upon the earth. And in both stories, I don't know if you notice. Jesus uses essentially the same phrases to, draw, to describe what was going on. He says they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and getting married. And they were building and sowing. And what is he saying? They, they were going about the normal affairs of their life. They were doing very human things. Right? That's what he's saying. And of course, none of those things are bad things. Those are good and God-honoring things. But what Jesus' point is, is that people were so preoccupied with the affairs of their daily life and the kingdoms of this world that they didn't see it coming. And so Jesus holds this out as a sort of warning to us. There's nothing wrong with eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. Right? College students, keep going to college. Right? Pursue academics. Get a job. God designed us to, to build, to learn, to grow, to build families, to take responsibility, to build businesses, to build ministries, all those things. But the warning is that we don't get so preoccupied in this life here that we are not prepared for the life to come, right? We don't get a cosmic countdown timer for the return of Jesus Christ. I watched the SpaceX's first missile, te- uh, missile test launch, and there was a countdown timer. 
It was very helpful. I didn't have to be tied to an internet screen all week long. I could go about the affairs of my life, check in when the countdown timer was getting close, and then I chime in for the last 15 seconds, and then three, two, one, and blast off it goes, and that was really helpful. God does not give us one of those. We don't know if we have 100 years, 100 minutes, or Jesus will come this afternoon. And if we had the countdown timer, likely we would go about our lives as we wanted. And then as the timer approached zero, we would really dial in and square up with one another and with the Lord and tie up loose ends, make sure we're living in humble repentance. And then we're good to go when he comes back. But Jesus is saying, there's no Elon Musk countdown timer for my return. People are just going to be doing people stuff. When Jesus comes back, we'll be about our daily lives. And no one is thinking this is the moment when Jesus is coming back until it comes. Conor McGregor, the UFC fighter, who often gets quoted in sermons, I'm sure. Uh, And other people have said this, but I heard Conor say it. He said, you don't have to get ready if you stay ready. I think in a sense that's Jesus's admonishment here. Jesus's return will be unexpected. And so now is the moment to come to Jesus. Now is the moment to turn from our sins. Now is the time to forgive the person that hurt you. Now is the time to share the gospel with the people in your lives. Now is the time to reconcile and mend broken relationships. Now is the time to be generous with our wealth. Now is the time to care for the vulnerable and live in the kingdom here. Now is the time to live for Jesus. Now, Jesus points us out in further ways, verse uh, 31, next three verses. It says, on that day, let the one who was on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. And it says, remember Lot's wife. What he's saying is that when he comes back suddenly, like lightning across the sky, our material goods will be no good to us in that moment. There's no going back. We don't take it with us. He's saying, if we're out in the field, we're not going to come back to the house In other words, there's no time to tie up loose ends in those moments. And he says, remember Lot's wife. It's interesting. Everyone was familiar with the story in this moment. If you're not familiar, this is a story from Genesis 19. God had come to spare Lot and his family from the coming judgment that's about to come to their hometown. And he's leading Lot and his family away, uh, leading them with two angels. But Lot's wife looks back and she's turned into a pillar of salt. That seems very severe. But here's what's going on. Lot's wife's sinful mistake wasn't just that she looked back. It's that her heart longed back. Alistair Begg, the preacher, says, Her feet were running, but her heart was staying. And Jesus is warning us here not to get caught up in this world, to keep our heart's greatest commitment, our greatest concern in the kingdom of God. Verse 33, he goes on, Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, like Lot's wife. But whoever loses his life will keep it. So the opposite of Lot's wife, the opposite of looking back and longing back to our life before Jesus is verse 33. It's someone who willingly turns from their old life. That phrase that we will lose our life, it's not that we've displaced it and that we can't find it. It's that we have found so much life in Jesus. We say there is no looking back. I know that my life is walking with Jesus from this day forward. I know that he is my king and he is my greatest contentment. And so we run to Jesus and we keep running to Jesus until he comes back. He is our salvation and he is our life. Another way you could say it, we don't stand with one foot on the dock of this world and one foot in the boat with Jesus. They are not stationary. They are not in the same spot. Jesus is saying you need to get all in the boat with Jesus. You need to jump all in, and now is the time to get in the boat with Jesus, because Jesus' return will be unexpected, undeniable, unexpected. Lastly, he's going to tell us 
that his final return is going to divide humanity. Verse 33, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. So Jesus gives us two vivid analogies here. Two people are in bed. One's taken, the other's left. Two people are working their day job. One is taken, the other one returns. Now, Jesus isn't clear in this passage which one is taken and which one is left. I spent an inordinate amount of time researching this, both historically and this past week in preparation of this, and a lot could be said about it, but here's what we do know. We know uh, that it doesn't really matter because what we know is that one will be taken to judgment and one will be delivered, right? So think about this scene for a moment. We have the separation of two seemingly very similar people. It's like the people that we work with. The people that you're around probably look very similar to you. Like if you're, a, if you're a dispatcher for Union Pacific Railroad, your life probably looks very similar to someone else who is a dispatcher for Union Pacific Railroad. If you're a public school teacher in OPS, your life probably looks very similar to someone else who is a public school teacher in OPS. You probably wake up at a similar time. You wear similar looking clothing. You take your lunch break. Your uh, annual calendar looks very similar. And so you guys are very similar But there might be one profound difference if there is one who belongs to Jesus and the other that doesn't belong to Jesus. And Jesus is saying that makes all the difference on the day when he comes back. That's what Jesus is saying here. The two very similar people, you may have a husband and a wife. They share everything in life, even their bed. They're two people side by side, very similar. Two colleagues at work, side by side. And even though they're close in proximity, they're close in physical appearance, they're close in relationship. There will be a holy separation on that last day as one is taken to judgment and one is taken to deliverance and salvation. And Jesus' point is that this is going to be a great division when Jesus returns. And so everywhere we look, everywhere we go, City Light, every room that we are in, there are only two types of people in this world. There are those who know Jesus and those who don't. And our greatest priority now would be that everyone that we know would come to know Jesus before it's too late. And so Jesus sort of is wrapping up his teaching here. The kingdom is here. It's in our midst, and yet it's coming, and it's going to be unavoidable, and you're not going to miss it, and it's going to divide humanity. And finally, the disciples come to a moment of response, and they answer with this question. It's a very disciple question, if you know the disciples. They simply say in verse 37, where, Lord? What's funny about the question, we don't really know what they're asking. Like, where what? Where's the one going to go, and where's the other one? Like, or where's Jesus coming back, or where's this? We don't really know. So we look at Jesus' answer. We think maybe that will clear it up. And he said to them, that's Jesus, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. We think, well, that makes it very clear. Now we know exactly, we know exactly what's going on here. And uh, if you look at the bottom of your Bible page there, that's the end of chapter 17. We go on to now a parable about prayer. So we're left with no other clues in this moment. But here's what I think, and I hold it humbly. Here's what I think this conversation is. The disciples are essentially asking, where is all of this going to go down? And Jesus' answer is essentially on the whole earth, right? So my family and I, we live on the, on the edge of town. And oftentimes as we're driving, like on a county road or a state highway, you'll see what we call turkey vultures circling overhead. There might be one, there might be two, there might be three. But almost always as we come up to that point on the road where the turkey vultures are swirling, what do we find? Roadkill. There's a dead possum, a dead raccoon, a dead deer, right? Um, And so what Jesus is saying here is that uh, scavenger birds will travel for lunch. They go wherever there is death. 
And so Jesus, I think, is essentially saying the coming judgment and deliverance, it, it's everywhere. It doesn't know geographical limits. It's not just in Israel. It's not limited to one place. He says wherever the corpses, the vultures will gather. In other words, there won't be all the people from one country who are saved and all the people from one other country or geographical region that are delivered. He's saying that, that wherever there is spiritual death, there will be judgment. And wherever there is spiritual life in Christ, there will be deliverance into the life to come. So it'll be two people, a husband and a wife, side by side, two identical twins. Doesn't matter what defines and divides us isn't what we do, the family that we're born into, the people that we're around, but it's our faith in Jesus. And Jesus' return will divide humanity. And so that's the end of Luke 17. That's what he's teaching us. Jesus is king. He's the king of the kingdom. And his kingdom is here now. It's in our midst. What do we take from this? Number one, I think we should take that now is the moment of decision. Now is the time in between Jesus' first coming and his last coming. When he's empowered us, when he's inviting us to come into the kingdom, to know the king of the kingdom, because there is, again, this last day when the king will come in his final consummate moment, physically and visibly. And on that last moment, there won't be another chance to make a decision to follow the king. And so if I could just implore you, friends, come into the kingdom. Let me tell you, the king is a good king. He loves you. The king is a servant king. And this king can be trusted. He came to die for your sins. He didn't demand perfection and performance. He only demands humility and repentance. That we come and we acknowledge our sin. We turn from our sin and we receive his grace. Would you humbly trust in Jesus today? And for all of us, I think it similarly to the last passage that I taught, I think everything in this last sort of quarter of the book should awaken us a sense of urgency, a sort of a appropriate distaste for this world, a sense that, man, are the things that I'm giving my time, my energy, my prayer, my resources, the things that keep me up at night, am I building a kingdom here that's going to waste away anyway on that last day? Or am I investing in the kinds of things that will yield a reward in the life to come? that a hundred years from now, I'll be so glad I invested in those. There should be a a sense of urgency to tell our our neighbors and our colleagues, our friends and our family, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so would Jesus stir in us to live for these things, to live with an anticipation and a preparation for the coming consummation of all things when the King comes on that last day. Thank you for joining us this morning for a favorite message from Pastor Gavin Johnson of City Light Omaha. If you'd like to hear this message again or more like it, check out Heard On Air on the MyBridge Radio app or online at mybridgeradio.net.